in my opinion, if you don't build multi-product DNA in a SaaS company before 100 million in revenue, like probably before 50 million in revenue, maybe even before 20 million in revenue, I don't think that DNA is easy to like transplant nor like imbue into into the culture. I think it's really hard. Multi-product's really hard. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Unsolicited Feedback. I'm Brian Balfour, your host and founder and CEO of Reforge. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Fareed Masavad, and a longtime friend, Patrick Campbell. Patrick was founder and CEO of ProfitWell, an analytics tool for subscription companies. They sold to payments company Paddle about a year ago for $200 million. We tackle a couple different topics on this episode. First, we do a detailed growth model breakdown of the product Loom, which was acquired last week by Atlassian for close to a billion dollars. We go through retention, their core acquisition loops, their monetization model, defensibility. And at the end, we start to debate why we think Atlassian bought Loom, how it fits into their overall product portfolio, as well as their growth strategy. But before then, I couldn't resist getting Patrick's hot takes on a couple of the most recent topics we've talked about related to Unity's pricing debacle, as well as the changes that are happening in pricing and monetization due to AI tooling. Patrick has seen more pricing rollouts and more pricing data than any person I possibly know, and he has some extra spicy hot takes in this episode. We hope you enjoy it. Co-founders yeah. are super, super important. And I have my, my, my minor thesis on this is that you kind of need to like deeply hate 40% of your co-founder and Fukuno and I <laughs> deeply hate 40% of each other. Like he's this socialist Argentinian crossfitter with like 2% body fat. And I'm just not any of those things. Um, and so we balance each other out really, really well. Why do you need to hate 40% of your co-founder? Hate's a strong word, right? And it's a loaded word. So being yeah, yeah, yeah. for effect. But I, I think that there's there's too many co-founders that end up being very similar and there's too many co-founders that end up not bickering enough and <laughs> it doesn't mean that that needs to be volatile but you know speaking for myself here as well i think that what made us work well together so much there's so many elements where he was almost the exact opposite of me and so we just like sanded down those decisions in a really really good way and so for example i was a little bit more commercially focused i was like oh if we build this thing all of a sudden we're going to be able to like get this type of customer it's going to be amazing and he just starts like a good product leader from the premise of no like why would we do that right and you have to convince him right and he kind of doesn't help you convince him he does you know <laughs> set up the framework of how to be you know convinced but it's yeah. like it's just like one of those things where I think that you do need to be very, very aligned on culture and principles and all those fun things. But I think it's like culture in general. You want to be homogenized over all of the really important principles and, and values. And then you want to be diverse on everything else. And I think that's what creates the best, the best companies. And I think that's the best kind of co-founding crew as well. Hmm. I don't know. I've done it all. I've done one co-founder. Yeah. I've done two co-founders and I've done, I've done solo. I've done all I've done all three and they all have their pros and cons. Yeah. They're all different they're all different difficulties a hundred hundred percent. I would also just say that I think Reforge was unique in the sense that I had enough of the skill sets to be able to solo found that. And so part of it kind of just comes down to the idea as well. It's just like technology for us was not as big of a need in the beginning. And so I was able to fill that gap in other ways, but certainly like 
I've certainly had like, I've worked with a lot of great people through Reforge that I can lean on, but there's a different type of lean you can put on a co-founder than you can on anybody else. That has certainly been a huge gap for me at different moments in the, in the Reforge journey. I will say like the CEO spot always has an element of loneliness. Like even if you have really good co-founders, but I think when you have co-founders, it allows you to kind of vent a lot or get perspective. So some of the darkest times that we had over the 10 years was, you know, I'd be having a really bad day or something, but then Facundo would have something positive that happened, right? So you start to balance mm-hmm. that out. I'm curious, knows what that's gonna Patrick, be. about that word operator, because I think there are a lot of people who say, I'm a founder, but you use the word operator, which often people like myself, non-founders use to describe what they do. And I'm curious, like how you found operating to be different as CEO versus non-CEO, post-acquisition, et cetera, and whether both are the kind of operating you're excited about or whether you feel like you have to be like building something from scratch? That's a really good question. And I'm going to try to have a good answer because I haven't really thought of that. And I haven't even thought of the like Freudian slips of like, yeah. say, operator versus founder. See, my um, job as the only non-founder in this trio is to ask questions yeah, like yeah. that because I have nothing to yeah. add. Really good operations there, Fareed. <laughs> really good operations there. No company scales without moving to an execution and operation mindset. Like, I think that's it, full stop. I don't want to be someone who's the founder and just the founder and you founded the idea and then it didn't really get anywhere. I want to be the person who like, you know, is really high output in terms of being an executive who just so happens to also be the person who founded the thing. Like you want to, it's almost like parenthood. You have to shepherd it all the way through to adulthood for it to be exciting kind of thing. Yeah. But I also think that's where there's, there's a certain level of difficulty, right? Because Andreessen said on some podcast I listened to recently where there's like managers and then there's like founders, I think it was, where it's like the founders come in, they disrupt they start to figure out and implement those growth loops. But then eventually in a company's life cycle, normally it's like either pre-IPO or post-IPO, but like not way pre-IPO, where all of a sudden like a bunch of managers come in and their job is to basically like make sure, you know, the world doesn't end and like the growth loops stay in place. <laughs> like there's a lot of companies that even in this market, they're going to grow 30, 50%. And it doesn't really matter what the management team does. <laughs> like as long as they don't- Don't do F it up, terrible, basically, right? yeah. Yeah, it's like, don't screw it up. And I think that, that's that's cool, that dichotomy, but I think that when you look at companies that do really well, like amazingly well, and even across different industri- industries, they have that like founder operator whose role has absolutely changed over the years, but they stay through yeah. the journey, right? Because you don't have this handoff where all of a sudden a lot of that knowledge is lost or that important kind of core is lost when there's this transition. And I think that, you know, I'm not there yet. I'm not like that person yet, but I, I aspire to be that yeah. person, if that makes sense. I always thought the term serial entrepreneur was kind of a weird one because it's like, oh, I'm going to do this yeah. over and over and over again. And like, isn't the goal to be a terminal entrepreneur? Meaning like you have a thing that yeah, you like, like is big and valuable and like long lasting enough that you spend your life on it. Like that would be, you know, Steve Jobs wasn't a serial entrepreneur. <laughs> he was like, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he built Apple. So. I think it yeah. just depends on what yeah. you want, right? Like, yeah, yeah that's what, what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah, like idea, I, I definitely think there's the founders who just yeah. love the disruption part of it and never want to make that transition. And it's kind of similar to like ICs who become managers who really don't want to become yeah. managers, right? It's a similar thing with like, you know, you put a founder through that and it's not something that they really want. And it actually 
probably creates more problems than anything. So I do think a lot of founders where they don't realize they have a choice, right? Like they don't realize they have a choice, not only in what they do in life in general, like they feel anchored to the company no matter where it is, but they also don't realize like the company can be built in the image that they want, right? right? And I think a lot of folks, they get a board around them, especially first-time founders. They get a, you know, if they're lucky enough to get to a unicorn status or above, they have to get a board around them, investors, all this other stuff. They've never done this before. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, I have to listen to this. I have to listen to this. I have to listen to this. And it's like, no, 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 no. You, you can have the, you know, the conviction to build your life or whatever you're looking for in, in that image, as long as you're following your fiduciary duties yeah. and everything like that. And I think that's where a lot of founders get stuck. And then they think, oh, well, this just means I'm, I'm a zero to a hundred guy or a zero to one guy. And it's like, Maybe you're not. Maybe you just didn't have the convictions when you're at one or a hundred to, to kind of push. Yeah. Forward. And so, I don't know. I'm an amateur psychologist. So I, one of the things I think <laughs> in my experience, every company in a lot of ways is a reflection of their found of the founder and their idiosyncrasies, right? Some are intentional and some are unintentional. I think what you're saying is like, if you can embrace that your company can be unique and in a lot of ways built in your own vision, <laughs> you know, like as a mirror of yourself, because ultimately they all are. Slack is a mirror of, of Stuart Butterfield, like Instacart is a mirror of a Meta. Like, I think if you're intentional about it, you can say, I am allowed to design this around me <laughs> and like what works for me and how I want to build and put the right people around me. And there are others that it's just a, sort of accidental. It's just an emergent property, but it's never like everybody conforms to like the one platonic ideal of what a company should be. I know that some cultural bits depend on the type of product and company that you're building. And, and that's important. Are there one or two things you're like, no matter what, no matter what I do in the future, these things are going to be part of that. And they are like non-negotiables for you. Yeah, hundred percent. And they're somewhat controversial. So let's get ready go. To clip, ben. This let's is a nice go. little clip here. Um, <laughs> so the first one is, is I, I will not work at a company nor run a company that doesn't embrace this concept of the most charitable interpretation or the principle of charity. And the basic idea is um, it's a way of handling confrontation, right? So we have a choice when we're confronted by someone. And I'll give an example because that'll kind of bring it to life. Like if Fareed, you commented on my beard and I didn't like when people commented on my beard, well, you and I haven't talked in a while. And so I have a choice there. I can be offended, can, can assume that you meant something really negative by it. And, you know, if we were working together, I can go to my manager, go to HR and complain about it. Or I can go, okay, Free didn't mean anything by it. He doesn't know. And just leave it at that and not say anything to you. And if I can't do that, I can go, hey, Fareed, just so you know, like, I know you didn't mean anything by it, but like, I don't really like when people comment on my beard. Like, you know, we're adults and let's yeah. you know, treat people like adults. So that's a really big thing. And then I think that the other thing that's really, really important to me is having like a culture that is disagreeable. Now... Again, another thing, people hear that. Oh my God, everyone's yelling at each other, arguing. No, 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 no. That's not what that means. What it means is, is like problems only get bigger. Your job as, you know, a, a member of the team is to like bring up either your dissent or your other ideas or your disagreements and do that in a respectful way, obviously. And the reason I think it's so important is one, I, I, I think that like that's where the best ideas come from and that's where the ideas go from good to great as well is when you can get those extra ideas. But two, as your headcount increases, it naturally becomes less confrontational because people don't know each other as much. There isn't as much trust yeah. that's built. 
So if you put that at the bedrock of the culture, it's like, oh, no, it's your job to disagree. All of a sudden, it gives people permission to say to the exec when they're just an entry-level employee, like, hey, you know, just in the nature of being disagreeable, like, I just don't understand this piece, right? And then, you know, it sparks a really, really yeah. good discussion. I love that they make a great pair. Like, they work together, right? It's yeah. like, hey, if we're yeah. going to be in a disagreeable culture, we need to also, when you receive that disagreeability, be acting in the most charitable interpretation. I do want to take an opportunity since you're here to get your quick take on some of the topics that we've talked about over the past, I don't know, four or five episodes. The first is that I believe it was with the episode with Ravi Mehta, we talked a lot about the unity pricing change in rollout and how just big of a disaster it ended up being for a few different reasons. One is like what they rolled out was unbelievably confusing to anybody who tried to interpret it. Two is that it was completely disconnected with the value that they create with their customers, their game developers. And then three is just the rollout kind of felt like it did all the things that were taught that you're not supposed to do, like surprise the customers and <laughs> and no grandfathering and like Give all them that three kind months. of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it just so happens. Like we didn't, we didn't know this at the time. It just so happens in the past couple of weeks, the Unity CEO ended up getting fired over this whole debacle, which is crazy to think about. A CEO of a multi-billion-dollar company gets fired based on a pricing yeah. change. Right? Who also like, is not just like a that random is, that CEO. Is crazy. Like is a big-time exec CEO guy. Like you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I'm just interested what your take or any takeaways and thoughts that you have just kind of watching watching this on the sidelines totally. after seeing so many different pricing rollouts yourself. I think what happened is some exec or board member like years ago basically was like, did you see X customer made $15 billion on their game and they're only paying us a hundred yeah. grand a year with our licenses? Like that's crazy. Everything they built was on top of our product, right? Mm -hmm. That's probably what happened. Then... They talked about it for three years and they made some pricing changes, right? So Unity did make some pricing changes, right? They started adding a number of years ago. I think it was like 2013, 2016. They started adding like, okay, you can only be on this tier if you make less than this much from your game per year or something like that, right? And then some board member kept saying like, we need to align with the success of our customers, right? Because that's like the classic value-based pricing thing. And then finally somewhere someone broke through and was like, let's actually do it. They put up a team, the team did a bunch of research and then they started handling all the little yeah. objections. And you saw this in the blog post where it was like, there's this question about this. Was it apply to this? What does it apply to this? And they forgot like 16 different things people were gonna bring up. And they're dealing with a very temperamental type of customer, right? Not all of them, but like the people they really wanted to harvest from were their large customers who probably don't care as much, right? If you like 5X their prices and had some sort of a cap, they probably don't care because they're like, we got so much money and we can't live without this software. Of course we should be paying them more. We've always told you guys you're charging us too little, right? That happens all the time. But then the indie developers who are at the low end, they're the ones who are like, what? And then when there's all this opaque nature about how they're actually gonna get charged, how Unity's gonna measure all these other things, all of a sudden they cause a crap storm and this is where all the YouTube videos were. Like like giant game companies were coming yeah. out with YouTube videos. They weren't <laughs> coming out with like 
like we need to release a press release about how crappy this is. It was all these indie games. And those indie games are really, really important. They probably don't bring in all the revenue for Unity, but they definitely are like the voice or like the street cred that Unity gets, right? So here's kind of like the lesson. I, I actually think the notion of moving to align with the customers is absolutely right. I think it's really smart. And I think that all of their premises and all of their logic is completely correct. Where I think that they messed up is in like one to three areas. The communication was absolutely atrocious. They didn't have the right way to measure it. They didn't talk about the right way to measure it. And that could have been solved by taking this blog post and sending it to a customer advisory panel and saying, this is what we're thinking. What do you think? And then their indie developers <laughs> would have freaked out at them. Their enterprise customers probably been like, whatever. And they just wouldn't have moved on yeah. from there, right? The second thing that I think they got really, really wrong, and you guys talked about this a little bit in the last episode, we were talking about AI pricing, is that ultimately when you have a value metric, which is how you charge, you do need to be careful of how connected that value metric is to the value that your customer perceives your product doing, right? So Ryan, I, I read or watch a course on pricing on Reforge. I go implement it. I make $3 million based on the changes that you told me to make. Well. Yeah, you helped me do that, but I did all I did work. it. So why do you get a cut of my $3 million, yeah. right? That doesn't make any sense. It's two orders or more away from the actual change. Hmm. And so the lesson there is like, one, the metric you pick, super, super important for perception. And then ultimately how you package that metric, right? Is it incremental, like an API call? Is it batched? Like, you know, you get 100 API calls or is it something where it's like tiers, where it's like, this tier is zero to 100,000 calls. This tier is 100,000 to 250,000 and so on and so forth. And I think if they had made those changes and ultimately they'd done a customer advisory panel, they would have gotten to the pricing that they finally fixed without like a whole lot of gruff in between basically. But that's that's yeah, kind of yeah. my high level tip. Right, I like that. Okay, quick take number two. Why you mentioned it, the AI pricing. We're in Patrick Campbell's pricing corner, PC squared. It's the pricing um, yeah, <laughs> is I like it. Uh, you mentioned kind of pricing and monetization around AI, which we talked about in the last episode with Claire Vo. We talked about the two sides of the equation: perceived value and cost. On cost, we talked about hey, there's actually real costs to these AI features, right? GitHub kind of came out and said they were, or there was a report that said they were losing about twenty dollars on average per month per user of Copilot. The Arc browser just recently launched something called Arc Max, which has their AI features. And it. it's like you kind of hover over a link or something and it auto generates a, a summary. They said 42% of their user base has opted into it so far and literally said that it's lighting money on fire. <laughs> and which they're we're back, baby. Which, it's an environment. I love that's it. That's right. Which they're trying. So there's real costs. And then the other side of the equation that we talked about, which is, well, how does AI change the perceived value equation um, from the customer? And how do those two end up getting resolved? And there's been a lot of talk about hypotheses and stuff about how like perceived pricing is going to go away in an AI world. But anyways, I'm interested in what your thoughts are kind of related to how pricing and monetization might change in the world of AI so that, you know, I and the other CEOs don't get fired like the Unity CEO <laughs> over, over a bad decision. Well, here's the thing. This is where software's pricing has always been going, right? Like even without AI, right? So it used to be we sold perpetual licenses, right? And then we had this like cloud thing and we're like, well, 
like anyone can have a seat, right? So like, what does this, what does this mean? And we, and we started to be able to measure stuff, right? We measure like how many videos you uploaded and how many of these are widgets or what shits you use. So actually in 2019 or 2020, I don't know the exact year, over 50% of software and SaaS pricing became non-seat based. Basically, all of a sudden, people were using these value metrics. And a lot of times, like, I know everyone hates their billing system. Like, it's fun to, like, hate on it. They do really, really hard work that you don't appreciate as an employee of a billing company. So just uh, just respect your billing system a little bit more. But these billing system enabled you to, like, not only start to measure these things, but also charge based on them. And we're just seeing that continuation. And the thing that a lot of people don't remember about your price is it's the reflection of the value that you create. You basically created some value. And that's not the hours it took. That's not the software you use. That's the amount of work you did. None of those things are the value. It's the thing that the customer is getting that they value. And because we don't trade goat for wheat in our economies, you're saying that value is worth this much, right? And so I think sell the work, not the software. Like the FreshBooks CEO said the same thing in 2005, where he was like, don't sell hours, sell value, right? To all of his, you know, kind of freelancers, right? It's the same exact concept. Now, where AI comes into play, and I think this is where... I'd want to double click on what you and Claire talked about, because I think that it's absolutely right that products or services where the differentiator is basic reasoning or basic information asymmetry, that perceived value is going to crater, Mm. right? Because AI is essentially not, I'm not the first one to use this metaphor. It's a brain in the jar, right? So it's, it's, imagine you hire a college grad and it's a computer and theoretically it actually costs nothing right? Because I think a lot of these costs are going to come down pretty substantially over time. Like we're just kind of talking about how it's expensive right now. That's not going to be forever, right? Servers used to cost a lot of money back in the day as well. And so I think that if your product is relying on basic reasoning, basic information asymmetry, I would go freemium as soon as humanly possible, or just harvest the business until like all of this kicks in in the next three to 10 years. But I think the other thing that you guys didn't talk about, I don't know if you disagree or you just didn't have time for it, is that Products where there's regulation, complex information asymmetry, time asymmetry, those are all going to increase in perceived value. And the costs are going to be even lower because all of a sudden your actual margin, not your gross margin, where software has been 90 plus percent, your actual company margin is going to be even lower if you're using these tools and you're letting your customers use these tools in some particular way. And therefore, what that's going to mean is I bet the advice I'm going to start giving is going to be the same advice that it was seven, eight years ago. Cost plus pricing is terrible. You're selling this for five cents per task. Why are you Mm -hmm. doing that? It's worth $10 to them. That makes no sense. I know it only costs you a penny, but that's okay. It's worth $10 to them. Like sell it to them for $10. Take that much margin, right? And I think that's where we're headed. It's just a continuation of of everything, mainly because AI is, is, you know, very cheap, inexpensive brains, right? And even if it takes three hours for the AI to do a task, it's asynchronous, right? And it costs pennies. So the team member or the software that you built, like it's going to come nowhere near that cost efficiency. And therefore your margin, your overall margin should improve and your price should improve pretty substantially. Can you just give a couple of examples what you mean by either time asymmetry or complex information asymmetry? Yeah. So complex information asymmetry is like a surgeon, right? That, that's a task and information that 
maybe like really basic surgeries that we've done a thousand times, but like a really specific heart surgery that's got this like complication because the body's shaped a certain way. AI is going to help that, but I'm still going to pay or my health insurance is going to pay a heart surgeon a lot of money to like handle that particular situation, right? That's complex, right? Regulatory is like anything that the government decides, like we're going to point at that or it's going to be a standard like SOC 2, right? Well, SOC 2, I would argue, does not have complex regulatory or basic asymmetry, but it has like, I need the stamp. And so it's, it could be a race to the bottom, especially because there's so many different of these companies out there, but there's going to be another standard that, you know, you can actually increase the price on. The time asymmetry is I have to call Delta for my, my lost luggage. I don't need to sit there for 20 right. minutes. If an AI takes three hours to figure that out and just tells me what's going on because they're crawling through that, that phone tree and asking the questions <laughs> and it costs me 10 cents, that's 10 cents versus 20 minutes of my time, however much that is worth to you. And that's, that's huge Delta. Now it costs 10 cents, but I'd probably pay, I don't know, 20 bucks, 10 bucks, five bucks in order for them to handle right. that situation for me. And all of a sudden, like think of how large that margin is, especially if they've also built their operations around AI as well, including their actual product. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's, those are, those are a couple of examples that I can think of off the top of my head. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Third topic, quick take of Patrick Campbell's pricing corner. I always like talking to you because it feels like you have like a, a pulse on kind of what's going on across subscription and software from the treasure trove of data that you get to see across yeah. all the different customers. What's the latest update? So for context, we, have, we now have about 50,000 different subscription companies using our financial analytics software. And so we're able to study that data and aggregate. What's really fascinating about the market data. So like the actual financial growth of the, the software market, subscription market, depending on how you want to slice it, you have these little cycles of like churn happening. So when we look at traditional kind of recessions and we can look back as far as even 2001 and some of this data, you have this massive like couple of months where all this churn happens. And then there's some little echoes that have happened after that. But there's like a point in time where we can look and say, that's when the economy got screwed, like in the, those two quarters, right? This one, very similar to the like general market, very different. You have this like initial, you know, not really big, but like not small, like amount of churn that happened. Then you have these ripples that are continuing to move on and they're getting smaller, but they're still happening. So to put that in a little bit more practical sense, the thing I take away from this is there are a lot of companies and we know some of them anecdotally that still have not cut where they need to cut. And they haven't like reduced their burn. They haven't reduced their expenses because, oh, it's going to turn around the next month. Oh, Jerome Powell did this thing. So it's going to get that much better. And it's like, no, this has been a very, very elongated and maybe it doesn't actually end up being a recession, but it's definitely a really long downturn versus obviously what we saw in COVID, which was like a recession for like two months. And then in previous like 2008, like it was, it was a couple of years, but it didn't feel as long as this is. And so all the fundamentals matter, but expansion revenue continues to be great. So <laughs> that's where you should be focusing is expanding your existing customers. And new revenue is like kind of back to 20, like 18, 2019 levels in terms of like the amount that's there, which is great. But a lot of people got really fat and happy over kind of 2020, 2021, 2022. And so it's as if we're, we're resetting a little bit on like what good looks like. But yeah, no dramatic ups, no dramatic downs, yeah. which, you know, is kind of the nature of the past couple of years. Are there certain segments where the downturn has actually helped them 
in any meaningful way? Like, are there types of software that are actually doing well in this environment or is it pretty much across the board? Normally the answer is yes. So when we look at past recessions and people have studied this on like uh, macroeconomy level, not just, but we've looked at it in the software space. Normally things like cheap entertainment, things like helping you save money, helping you make money, normally those things will actually do really, really mm-hmm. well for, for obvious reasons, right? Like movie theaters tended to do really, really well during recessions, even in the Great Depression, because it was really cheap entertainment that people could go on a date or you know go take their kids to or something like that. Today, there's, there's nothing that's massively winning or gaining. There's like individual companies that are doing well because they've tapped into a certain area of growth or they've tapped into something here and there, but there's no like industry like e-commerce during, you know, COVID, the 2020 COVID boom, right? Got it. I think I think we're just in purgatory to like summarize it. Like we're just in this purgatory and it's going to last as long as it's going to last. And some of us are going to be fine and some of us are screwed. And I don't think you could really like point to who is going yeah. to be screwed and who's going to be great. Yeah, it's interesting because I was talking to a company last week that I thought would have some tailwind. They're a vendor that honestly like replaces a bunch of engineering work you would do with something relatively inexpensive. And I thought, oh, a lot of big companies are going to be like consolidating down, et cetera. And when I said, hey, has this been good for you? He, the founder laughed in my face because he was like, uh, no, (laughs) you know, it's like nobody wants to spend money on anything. I think the problem, and it's, it's probably good for like the macro economy, but it's bad for like you running a business and trying to react to it is we've been going into recession for like over a year now. And it's like, it's just coming around. And then it's like so much of a recession or so much of the economy is just belief. It's literally feelings, right? It's like, oh, I read this thing, so I'm going to fire these people. Or I've read this thing, so I'm going to hire these people, right? Like that's, it, it does work that way. And then we all, like, even if we're like, no, 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 everything's fine. Like, this is why the government's been, you know, not really effective is because they'll say something and then everyone will be like, that's not true. Here's this other stat, right? And then we're, we're in this, this is why I said purgatory because like COVID, we saw churn just skyrocket for like a month and a half because everyone was like, this is the end, get ready to go for the next three years, cut, 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 cut. And everyone went quick, right? Here, there was like, normally we see like three phases, those ripples that I was talking about. Here, it's like we have eight ripples. Like it's like eight, you know, people are just kind of like, oh, okay, oh, okay. And it's not really like, we can't tie it to specific news. And I don't know. And now we're in, now it's like, well, this wasn't good. So now... You know, you, you listen to some other podcasts, and they're like, you should be ready to go without raising funding until 2025 now, right? And it's like, I don't think anyone knows what the hell is actually going on. And I think that because of that, and because we're not getting like a dramatic change, we might actually luck ourselves into a soft landing, but it's not going to affect your business. It's going to be like, cool, we had meandering growth. And then all of a sudden, three years from now, it's like, growth is really crushing it. We're geniuses. And it's like, yeah, maybe not. Maybe the market's just finally changed, so... It'll be tough. It'll be tough to kind of weather the next year or two. All right. Well, thank you for that, Patrick Campbell's pricing corner. Uh, (laughs) All right. Let's transition to a different topic. So last week, I woke up to some interesting and pleasant news, which was a company that I was an early investor in, Loom, was acquired by Atlassian for close to a billion dollars, $975 million to be exact, almost all cash. And I felt like this was like a good opportunity. I've been wanting to do a segment on this podcast called Growth Model Breakdown, where we just take a product and we talk through all of the different aspects of the growth model. So 
Here's a company that, you know, obviously has had a big recent announcement lately. It's a product I'm familiar with. I use it pretty often. So this felt like a, a pretty good opportunity for that. Before we dive into that, though, I have a few disclaimers <laughs> for our audience who, who are listening. Safe Harbor. First and foremost, all the credit goes to the founders and team. One of my biggest pet peeves is when these transactions happen, all of the investors kind of come out of the woodwork and like do the humble brags and I kind of claim credit. So Joe, uh, the CEO of Loom was nice enough to give me a shout out and in some LinkedIn comments uh, on some stuff, but they grinded it out for, I think it was like seven or eight years. I had barely anything to do with this success. So anyways, all credit goes to, to the founders and the team. Second is that None of what we're going to cover in this or what's going to come out of my mouth is inside information. The deal is still going through diligence, which is important. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And I haven't even received investor updates for many years. I have zero inside information. So all of my commentary is just thoughts from the outside and takeaways kind of combining reforged learnings and other stuff with knowing their product well. Third is to all of the press that was saying this was a failed acquisition. Seriously, uh-uh. shut the f up! You have no idea what you are talking about. Like this, I like uh, Brian uh, brings out his claws. I love this. It. Is this is my biggest annoyance? So a bunch of the press. Here, let me just read a couple of headlines for you, Brian. Actual headlines because yeah, when I googled, yeah. I was doing some research on this. Atlassian buys one-time unicorn. Loom at a hefty discount to 2021 valuation. From TechCrunch, Atlassian to acquire former unicorn Loom for $975 million. And then just one more from the information briefing, Atlassian to buy Loom for $975 million, a 36% discount to last valuation. So at the top of every single one of these articles, just always put in there it's unbelievable Sorry, just had okay. to throw it out hold on yes they raised the last round at a higher valuation than what they got bought for but the investors in that last round almost for sure had a 1x liquidation preference so they got their money back and because it happened in a relatively short period of time my guess my hypothesis is that they're able to recycle that cash and reinvest it out of the same fund so it's not that big of a deal for those investors all other investors and founders and employees got a great return <laughs> like out of this stuff. So I just don't get it where like the tech press is like looking for this narrative where they just want to crap on anybody and everybody that raised something. They, they're just like looking for the stories to say like, oh, how everybody was wrong in the Zerp era and everything's going to be a fail after that. That is not the case. This was a great outcome for almost everybody involved. So congrats to the Loom team and everybody involved on that and to everybody else. Like, seriously, just learn how this stuff works before you publish crap like that. I love that we're doing the growth model breakdown, but I think what's awesome about this deal is I actually see this as one of the rare opportunities where an acquisition may actually live on to be more valuable, like as part of the parent company over the course of the next couple of years than it was on its own. And I know that may not turn into like necessarily financial returns because it's mostly a cash thing, but like 
I, I think most acquisitions are doomed to failure. I think there are a lot of interesting ingredients on this one that make it maybe like set up for really, really strong success. Like the press should be awesome marriage, <laughs> you know, perfect deal, you know, those kinds of things, in my opinion, versus all about the financials of it. I think we spend a lot of time talking about the financials of acquisitions instead of talking about like, what are the product implications? What are the actual advantages that that come out of this? How is this a win-win for both sides um, versus just talking about the M&A transaction? So I, I hope we dig into that a little bit today. But why does Loom work, Brian? Okay. So yeah, I want to go through this in a few sections. So first, what is Loom if you haven't used it? It's actually a super simple screen share recording tool. So you usually install a browser, a Chrome extension, or a desktop application on Mac or Windows. And in one click, you can start recording yourself and the screen. And it's used highly for like asynchronous communication. Think I need to tell my developers about a bug that I'm seeing in my product. I'm a CEO that needs to communicate something to the entire company. Super simple, easy way to do that and turn it into an asynchronous communication tool. So I'll walk through this in a few sections. I think we should first start with retention, the foundation of growth. We'll then talk through acquisition a little bit, then through monetization. I want to touch a tad on defensibility because I think this actually might be where there's a tad of weak spot in the growth model. And then the last but not least, kind of forward-looking strategy, how this is a great marriage. I'm interested to get your your thoughts on that, that parade. So we'll walk through each one of these sections. I'll pause. I'll give my little overview and take, and then we'll pause for Patrick All right. and Fareed's take. I think we well. should uh, um, err on the side of charitable interpretations, but also uh, disagree- disagreeability here, because I think that'll make it most fun. That's right. <laughs> Taking it. a cue from Patrick. <laughs> Anything you okay, say, I love that. I'm going to disagree with. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay. Let's start with retention. So one of the things we talk about in Reforge around retention is really how do you root this in the foundation of your qualitative definition of the problem that your product is there to solve, who you're trying to solve it for, and then like what the natural frequency of that problem is. And so when you look at Loom, the problem that they're solving is this, you know, rather than writing out some complicated communication, I can just record a video and send it very, you know, low friction. Very specifically, it is a horizontal communication tool, meaning that is used by many different personas, CEOs to product managers, to developers, to designers, to customer support, to sales, um, which is very different than a vertical use case, which I might get into a little bit later. You also kind of ask about, well, how often do most of these personas encounter this problem where they might use this tool, right? And depending on the actual persona you dive into, sales might be on a more daily end of the spectrum where they're communicating with customers every day. A CEO actually might be more on a monthly end of the spectrum where they might be primarily using it to communicate to the entire company. So there is this spectrum there around this natural frequency, but I would argue the best way to think about this is probably a weekly natural frequency, which balances out all of those different use cases. You can carry through that to how would we measure retention in a case about Loom and what actually influences retention in an engagement and in Loom's case. 
In measuring retention, I would argue the best way to measure retention for Loom is through some form of weekly active recorders, recording a video being that primary action. And the reason I do that is like, there's a lot of ways you could possibly measure retention. You could do it based off of viewing, you could do it based off of sharing, but it's very much specifically built a tool to record and send videos. It is not a viewing destination like a YouTube or something else, right? And in addition, recording, as we'll talk about, is the thing that drives the entire rest of the growth model, right? It is the thing that drives acquisition, it is the thing that drives additional engagement. From there, I would probably measure engagement just based on the number of videos people are recording within the week. That's probably going to be your biggest lever in influence on retention, which is the more I can get people to record videos, the more use cases I can get them on to record videos the likely the longer I'm, I'm going to retain. But the big question is, is in a product like this is like what actually influences retention? First and foremost, I think most people overestimate how much they can influence retention through product where most retention is actually baked in just the qualitative use case that you are using the product for and how often you experience that problem. So there's going to be a big difference from a salesperson, as I mentioned, and a customer support person to somebody who might use it on a lower frequency basis. But the big thing that I think influences retention in this case for Loom is it's not the things that drive retention for like something like a Facebook or a Pinterest, which we call manufactured loops and reforge, but we environmental loops, meaning they have got to be in the place, in the product where the problem is occurring. And so you saw this throughout Loom's lifetime where they very much early started on with integrations into specific tools like Jira, like email, where it's like, oh, I've got I've to type out this long message to somebody. Wait, oh, actually, Loom's right there. I can just you know click this button and record a video instead. Over time, they shifted that effort to more general applications, the browser extensions and the desktop applications to be kind of in that environment one click away whenever you need it. But that is the thing that probably influences retention the most. Last but not least is I would kind of think a little bit about here. And uh, when I think about retention for Loom is activation, which is they're a horizontal product, which means the pro is that it can be used for so many things. The con is that it can be used for so many things. And so my guess is that in the growth model, the hardest thing to get users over is activation, getting them to understand that use case, where they can build a habit, that they should be building a habit on and how to use it because it can be used for so many things. It's like when a user's coming in the door, it's hard to understand where to best point them. But they did do some interesting things over time. Two things that I want to call out. One is that they even call this out on their website. It's called camera anxiety. It's probably yeah. the biggest mental friction, cognitive friction that users have to it, which is like, this is a new behavior or was a new behavior, especially pre-COVID, where it's like, oh, like, I, I don't know about this. Like, how am I on, the, on this camera? And they, they kind of solved this in two ways over time. One is that they have this brilliant notification that the moment that somebody views your video, you get this like positive affirmation of like, oh, somebody's watched your video. And it kind of gives that dopamine hit of like, oh, okay, like maybe, maybe this is it. They also, to your first viewer, really encourage them to do like an emoji reaction to also give additional positive feedback in that loop. But the second thing 
where they, I think, really caught a tailwind recently is these AI editing tools that they've launched, which really massively reduces the friction to not only recording, yeah. but also just makes it really easy to look good. Like, you know, getting all the likes and the ums out of there, all of the silence periods, it's like all of the easy editing stuff to make you get over that camera anxiety over time. So that's how I look at retention, which is it's all about weekly active recording. The things that are influencing it are the use case, the environmental factors, and how they can get over this camera anxiety. So in while activation. the use case certainly makes sense that you would do this a lot, it replaces a whole bunch of other kinds of communication. It's one that didn't exist before. And so I get why I would make a loom if I've seen a loom, but I don't understand how the first, like how this even got started. Do you know anything about the earliest days of the company? Like how did they get this new behavior off the ground? Because frankly, this isn't like a thing people were doing. They did make a verb out of it eventually. Like I'll send, I'll loom you. But if you were building something like this, that's highly horizontal attached to existing use cases, but a totally new behavior, like how do you get that off the ground in the first place? Do you think? I think a couple of things, no doubt they caught a huge tailwind sure. in COVID and the move to remote environment. I'm gonna, we'll talk about that in the monetization section because they did a couple interesting things there to take advantage of that moment. But it's not like screen recording didn't sure. exist you know, beforehand. It, it definitely did. And in the sense that a lot of times product managers or people in the development environment would like record a bug. The big thing that they did is they made that yep. 10 times easier in the tools and, and way more accessible. And so from what I remember, which was like seven or eight years ago, is that I do think a lot of the early use cases were those types of use cases where screen recording was being done, but they reduced the friction so much that it you know, it was not only a, they got them to activate on it, but I'm started to yeah. in increase usage. And then I think it expanded to the other use cases that felt like a little bit more of a new behavior. It's funny. I, I have, I went back in this email. I have an email with when they raised their seed round, they had HubSpot as one of the reference customers where it kind of went viral internally. So I reached out to a couple of folks that I still knew that were working there and they were talking, they were just talking about how in HubSpot, there was a huge confluence culture, like wiki culture of like writing thing, writing things out. And rather than writing out confluence thing, they had started to use Loom for those types of kind of knowledge store and updates. Yeah. And that's kind of how it kicked off. The interesting thing here is it catches two sort of waves at the same time. One is the one we talked about almost with Figma, which is, okay, in the old days, I'd have to screen record something. It's, I would like do it. I would get a file. Okay, now how do I get this file shared to the other people? Can they view it? Do they have the QuickTime viewer? And it's like, no, just do everything in the cloud. Like it's all just a link. And the link unfurls in Slack. It can go in email. It can go in any other tool. And now anyone can access it from anywhere because it's free. And it's like the simple behavior, record a screen recording, it's actually not the recording only that's hard. It's all of the things around sharing it and collaborate. And then the second is from single player to multiplayer. It's almost like hipstamatic to Instagram for screen recording. If you think about it, it's like, you know, I had some tool to record with, but it was just like a goofy single player tool. And they said like, no, this is a collaborative tool. You can see it. 
You can see who did it. You can see who's attached to it. It's not just a file. It's a thing with an identity and an existence and people can comment on it, collaborate around it. And again, that's the Figma trend we talked about, which is like every single player thing will become a multiplayer thing and every file-based thing will become an online link, (laughs) you know, a link resource. It's around such a simple behavior, but that all of a sudden that it 10Xs the amount of stuff that gets created around it is is super interesting. And, And the retention is just like built in. I see people doing it. I keep doing it. This becomes part of our company habit, even though it's such a basic and simple thing and looks like a simple feature. Patrick, you look like you have something to say. Yeah. I guess the question I would have for you guys on this is like, is there a way to have better product retention in such a base use case? Right? Like, yeah, I I I enjoy Loom better than Descript or some of the other products that exist out there. I couldn't tell you exactly why, but it also might just be because everyone sends me Looms and therefore like I respond with Looms, right? So is there is there a way to have truly pro- better products led retention yeah. on a product like this? Even? Personal, or is it more of a brand thing? So I think the brand thing does, retention. but I actually think there's something interesting about Loom is that we can talk about friction and use cases and like making it really easy and all those sorts of things. But in my mind, the virality of Loom and its retention are actually intrinsically linked. That the fact that I share this to other people, then they create Looms and they share them makes me more likely to do it myself. So it's not just brand, the word loom. It's that the behavior is accelerating, not just for me in a single player way, but for my whole organization in a multiplayer way. It's kind of like a light network effect. It's not exactly a network effect that like, oh, because Patrick uses it, I have to keep using it. But the fact that you are and I are means that this is becoming part of our collective habit, I think drives retention. I think of it as like you're creating company level or organizational retention as well as individual level retention that leans into that through the virality. I think what you're, Patrick, pointing to is more what I have labeled in defensibility, which is part part of the weak spot, which is, I, I kind of agree with both of you, which is Fareed, my guess is if we looked at the retention metrics and we segmented by number yeah. of users in a company, the ones with more users in a company, you're probably seeing 100%. a smile curve as more users come onto the platform mm-hmm. because of those dynamics. However, I'll preview this. There isn't the type of retention where I might be storing a bunch of information or company documents like in Notion. And as a result, like there's this growing lot. The more I use Notion, the harder it is to switch to something yes. else because I have lock-in. this growing loss. Yeah, yeah, there, there's this lock-in effect. And the reason I don't necessarily think that that exists with Loom as much as there is with something like Notion is that, at least in my use case, is that a lot of my use of Loom, the videos are very yes. like ephemeral, temporal. There's a there's a temporary value to them. And so just kind of calling bankruptcy, if I wanted to, which I wouldn't, uh, if I'm calling bankruptcy on Loom and saying I'm going to switch to something else isn't as big of a deal as it are some of the, yeah. these other products. So so I agree that there's a bit of a that component that's missing. I think my guess is that sure. they have a lot of ideas on how to make that um, happen, but it hasn't fully manifested, at least in my own use of Loom. This is where Loom's biggest strength 
which is how easy it is to share and link and unroll and see it in every other tool you might ever use, in particular Slack, but lots of others, is also its biggest weakness because the, enti the entity that you share is mostly stored on other systems and systems of record. So it's like, you don't go find a loom in loom, you find the loom embedded in a Notion doc. You find the loom in a Slack channel. You find the loom in an email. And I think that th like that's a huge strength. It made it really easy for everybody to see Loom links all the time. But like the way we talked about Zoom, where Zoom owns the meeting, which is awesome, but doesn't have any of the like glue around it really nailed down, Loom also like owns the message but is dependent on other tools for all the interconnections that would like make those deep defensible network effects. And so its strength is a weakness. I wouldn't want to lose it, but it also means that there's like not a huge home for like loom.com where I like go and look at my like company's stuff, right? Like if I used loom and you used boom or whatever, some competitor, they could kind of work together relatively simply, except for the fact that then we'd be paying yeah. for both. And like our CFO would be like, why are we paying for both? Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, we should get to that because they, they did have some competitors crop up over time that just were almost like fully, fully yeah. free to try to attack this. But and I'm interested in coming back to this because it, it kind of highlights the classic old age question of like, do you lean into the strengths yeah. of the growth model? Or do you try to like build things against the weaknesses and in that dynamic. But let's talk a little bit about acquisition here, which I'm going to argue that that the core loop responsible for most of Loom's growth to the reported 25 million users is what we would label in Reforge a user-generated, user-distributed content loop. So I record a video, I send it to Patrick and Fareed, they consume the video and they're like, ooh, this thing's cool. They become a user. They start recording and using it for asynchronous communication. Now, we talked a little bit about how they make a lot of these components really low friction in terms of both recording and sharing and consuming in other places like Slack or like Notion. But I actually think the key behind this loop is really dependent on the use case around what the user is recording the video for and how they are sharing it. And I think you could probably build out a two by two matrix of frequency of the the use case and it's like amplification, meaning, you know, when they share it, how many people are they sharing it to? You know, low frequency, low amplification would be, you know, a CEO sending a quarterly investor update to like a small group of investors. Whereas like high frequency Low amplification would be like sales using it almost on a daily basis, but they're only sending it to one or two people at a time. That still is actually pretty viral because of the high frequency nature of it, even though it has low amplification. Then you got your low frequency, high amplification use cases, something like all company update from a CEO that might be going out monthly, but it's going to hundreds, thousands, depending on how big of a, a company is. And then interesting, like I was trying to think of the use cases in the high frequency, high amplification bucket. And interestingly here, it's, uh, I think it's in education, a teacher that's using it almost daily to spread messages to all of their different classrooms. And there's an interesting part about this because this kind of relates to retention and how you activate people and how you, what use cases you can educate people on to start using 
which is you can influence this acquisition, your acquisition and your growth loop, not just by reducing friction, but trying to get users using certain use cases that might have more of our virality baked in on the, these two spectrums. The second component of this, I think, is there's a big difference between internal and external use cases. You know, an internal use case is something like me sharing a company update that will spread virally in a company, but it has a ceiling, right? Which is some percentage of your actual employee base. Whereas the external use cases like sales and customer support, maybe they have high frequency and low amplification, but you're breaking, you're going from wall to wall on a company to spread as well. And so I think these dynamics of frequency amplification and internal versus external use cases are probably the biggest factors in what was actually driving this core growth loop in Loom's model. To kind of combine a little bit of the retention and the acquisition, how much of the growth do you think was coming from the right side of that smile? Like, I don't know if you know numbers specifically that, and therefore you can't share, but like how much growth was coming from like accounts going from one to 20 users or something like that? That's a good question. I don't have any access to any of those those numbers. It depends if we're talking about growth of users versus growth of dollars. My guess is yes. most of the growth of the dollars was coming from that back half of the smile curve. And most most of the yeah. growth of the users was yeah. potentially not. Um that th- that would be that would be that would so be my guess. I though. think this yeah. one's an interesting one because we talk a lot about like PLG and freemium and and virality and B2B companies right now. And One of the things to remember is that for the vast majority of B2B companies, even those that are freemium, even those with meaningful virality, almost all of the growth is internal to existing logos, right? Like most of the virality is that the way you acquire new logos is either brand, like word of mouth. People hear about Loom. They talk about Loom. They go check out what Loom is, right? Or some other type of channel, content paid, sales, whatever it is. One of the nice things, Loom is one of the few companies like Zoom, DocuSign, those are the best examples I have that has meaningful content or acquisition, user-generated, user-distributed, or viral types of loops that cross company boundaries. And so I suspect they are better, they have a better long-term, like true growth in their new logos. And this is, just to throw it out, why I think Atlassian is probably really interested in them than even Slack, for instance, which had limited reasons why someone would invite someone to another from one company to another. And so relied on organic. And we all know that like in the early days, when you combine freemium and slowing acquisition (laughs) on a new logo basis, like that's when things get dicey, right? Because you have all the free to paid conversion dynamics, you need constant month over month growth to make those kinds of businesses work. And my suspicion is, is that Loom probably is more resilient to acquiring new logos month over month over month because of the sharing dynamic than most other B2B tools that would have to ramp up paid acquisition, advertising, content, some other kind of internal engine around that. My guess is they probably also got some boosts from the platform mm-hmm. integrations they did, but l- more like linear acquisition, the, you know, from the Chrome extension store or, you know, other uh, other things that they did. But but my guess is 
the vast majority of their acquisition over time kind of came from these dynamics. And the best thing is it's a double loop, right? It, 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 it's both acquisition and engagement, right? You know, the more that I'm sharing, it's bringing existing users back into the fold. But this is actually very much enabled by the third section, which is monetization and their pricing. So this is this is their current pricing. I, I, I can't remember all the evolutions over time, but the thing that we always talk about is like your pricing either enables or disables the way you acquire and engage users. And so being that, that that is its core acquisition loop, right? The free account, you know, you can record up to 25 videos per person. So it's allowing enough to not only let the user build a habit onto the tool, but also those free accounts are spreading it right wide, which is a really key part of, of the freemium equation. Additionally, in that tier, there's like Loom branding on it. So you get a little bit of extra you know, acquisition value, which if you want that Loom branding removed, you got to pay for it. So that that's a little bit of the give and take in their pricing model. And then they have this interesting up to five minutes per video as part of their free plan. This is something I think they've layered on over time to start driving more monetization. I don't remember this being the case early on. I could be really wrong about that. Now, they could have played with these levers totally differently, right? They could have not allowed as much recording of the videos, all that type of stuff on the free plan. But as we've talked about, that would have massively been detrimental to both their acquisition as well as their engagement model. And so this ends up being a bit of the trade-off in how their monetization model basically enables this. Additionally, interestingly, charging more for the Loom AI features that they've recently. So to our conversation before about real costs as well as real perceived value of these. So it is an add-on to to every single account. But the two other quick things I want to point out about their monetization model was that I thought they did something really smart during COVID, which was they were obviously somebody that got a tailwind from COVID to move to remote work. So they made all the premium features, all the limits, they removed all the limits and gave free access. I can't remember for maybe like a 90-day period, which my guess is massively boosted acquisition to take advantage of that moment, really unconstrain all of the acquisition and engagement loops. And then at a later date, ended up monetizing a portion of that base after things kind of settled in. But I thought it was a really interesting move during a moment to capture and maximize that tailwind over time. And then additionally, I thought something that's really interesting that's not available on this page is that they recently launched a beta of Loom for sales. So there's sales-specific features. And my hypothesis, very similar to Zoom, which is going from a horizontal product, You know, one of the disadvantages of horizontal products is that you might not be capturing all of the amount of the willingness to pay that you could out of your most active use cases and personas, and in this case, sales. But now that they've, they're have they starting to layer some things on, I think, to capture more of that willingness to pay of their most active segments as well to get additional monetization. So anyways, Patrick, I'm interested in your take on, on this and if there's anything that you might edit if you were Lou. Horizontal products are historically really, really difficult to monetize because of some of the things that you kind of pointed out. In particular, it's like, a competitor theoretically could build a very similar product and just change some of the dynamics of 
you know, the number of videos, the number of minutes, some of these little monetization landmines that they played in. And all of a sudden, now you have not necessarily a competitor with the same brand, but you get these little groundswells of communities who are like, yeah, I tried Loom, but they this one over here does this, right? And this is where yeah. you get the race to the bottom for a lot of products. But it doesn't affect Loom in the sense of it doesn't make it doesn't make Loom like suffer, but it makes it a lot more complicated, right? For those acquisition loops as well as those retention loops. And so here, I think they did a really, really good job because there's not a lot that you can do with a B2B focus. You're probably not gonna be able to cap the number of videos you can get. You can't really cap the number the amount of recording length when you start to pay, which they're doing. And I do like how they separated free by giving some of those kind of annoying things. Like, I don't know if you've ever used a Zoom account that's free at that 45 or like 35 minute mark. They're all of a sudden like, you have five minutes to go. And that is probably one of the most brilliant ways to get someone to actually pay for the account because they don't care about all these other features. They do care that you're about to cut them off or that the people you're on a phone call with are seeing that particular number and are, are you know seeing that they're using a free account. So I really, really like this. I think a couple of things to kind of point out is if you go down into the pricing page, basically it's all the integrations, right? Integrations are really for acquisition, meaning I won't use this product unless you have this. Retention, hey, like this is gonna help me be stickier because I'm able to push these particular, you know, widgets or what's in this case videos to different places. And they're rarely for monetization. But the reason I would suspect not having any inside information that the Zoom import there is because that probably costs them money or that's an indication that they're like moving off platform basically. So hey, you're gonna have to like pay for that. Or that was like something that enterprise folks really, really needed. And then Salesforce Salesforce, a lot of time, if someone asks for a Salesforce integration, like they yeah. have money, like they'll pay you for something. <laughs> it's like a big, so I'm willing to spend money target on your whereas, back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like, whereas Slack, it's like, well, Slack has video recording, so we kind of have to be there, right? So that's one of those things. And I just wanted to point that out because the days of like charging for integrations are pretty much over, except in like very specific places. Um, and then like wow. going back to the landmines concept, you pointed out the ones from free to paid. There's a couple other things that were really interesting here around like support and SSO and like admin controls, these types of things. Again, like someone asks that question in the sales process, they have yeah. money. So don't sell them the $12.50 thing, sell them the 200 seats. And they basically set this up in a really, really smart way to get that expansion and then ultimately to you know get those bigger deals, which was probably driving the overall revenue growth at least. Yeah, it's, it's tough. It, I think they did a really good job with a very, very tough type of product, frankly. And I actually think back to, I think it was Farid's point, if I'm Atlassian, This is like a perfect buy, at least in my mind, because all of a sudden you have something where it is the name brand that most people know. You have a massive infrastructure to cross sell. I mean, that's what Atlassian's really, really known for at this particular point. And and ultimately like this is now an add-on, right? And Atlassian in my mind is is learning a lot from Microsoft where they could bundle this and all of a sudden it's a differentiator or they're just going to add on city this to every other deal that they might be selling. And it's going to take a while to start getting integrated. But this is one of those products where like, I'm glad it got sold because I think it's one of those things that works with the right buyer. But if, you know, someone came, they might not have gotten the same price unless it was like an Atlassian type company, I should say. Before we dive into that, mm. I want to ask you about the price itself, which is 1250 per user per, per month. 
feels really, really high. And the reason I say that, having worked on these kinds of products, is I believe there is a giant anchor around every single, on the, on the leg of almost every single productivity tool in the B2B space, which is the pricing of G Suite. So Google charges $12 per user for per month for email, docs, spreadsheets, slides, calendar, the whole thing. And so like this thing, it's always like kind of an anchor, which is like, I'm going to spend, and it's the same as the Microsoft O365 problem, which is like, this company charges me less than this for all this stuff. And you're charging me this much here. And so my thesis here is either one, except that not a lot of people are going to pay for loom because like most people aren't engaged enough, but charge a ton for those who are (laughs) like charge at the high end of what their expectation is, because it's not going to, the willingness to pay for anyone willing to pay over one penny is high enough that you should just charge 1250 or be really cheap, which would be like the old school Atlassian strategy. Like Atlassian used to charge things like $2 per seat, like $3 per seat for like really important tools to try and drive a lot of scale. And also to get away with not having a sales team early on, they were like, it's so freaking cheap. You shouldn't care. Right. <laughs> like that kind of thing. And I'm surprised yeah. by Loom's price. I think if you asked me to quizzed me, how much does Loom cost on its business plan per seat? I would have guessed like five or six dollars per user per month so i'm curious like looking from the outside like what yeah like where do you think this lands i think you're showing your software age and (laughs) your operation age here no i'm just digging yeah we said disagreeable respectfully disagreeable no i think you're directionally correct with the first thing you said so think of it this way this is a horizontal piece of software that other products we're already using have something that isn't as good, but kind of fits the bill, right? So I can record a five minute Slack video, share my screen, and I'm already in Slack and I can kind of, I, I, I can, I get maybe 50% of the features, not even 50% of the features, but I feel like right. I got 90% of the use case, right? And so you have that dynamic and there's probably point solution competitors. I definitely personally bought Excel cause I needed it. And then I was like, well, it has yep. Teams in it, so I'm not going to buy the Zoom thing. So I've had to explain to several people, like, you're using Teams? I was like, yeah, I bought Excel, it was included, and I didn't want to pay for a Zoom seat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I, I, there is that dynamic, but I think, I think the first point you made around, you all of a sudden have this dynamic that Brian was talking about, where if they're not activated, they're not a customer, right? If they don't get through activation, but when they're activated, they're a customer. Emphasis, you know, put there directly. And so... All of a sudden, I want to ride one of the levels of what's called the Amex effect. So the Amex effect is basically what is the thing, depending on my seniority or depending on my wealth, where I'm going to pull out a credit card and be willing to slap it down for a product, especially if I use that product or if especially I'm at like a good activation for that, that you know, kind of payment. And this is 150 bucks a year and it's $150 per year. I don't see monthly pricing. So all of a sudden, I'm not converting from this page. I'm converting when it's like, ah, I need more than five minutes. Fine, I'll finally upgrade. They've been giving me free so long. I've used it for three to six months. Now I'm actually going to pay. And I think that that's, that's where they're getting. And when you're, you have a product that's in that position, don't be $50. Don't be $20. You should be $100, $150, or $200. Nothing in between those because there's this weird cognitive thing that happens at 120 and 170 at least in looking at a ton of pricing data. But I think they're actually perfectly priced for this particular kind of entry. Um, 
because they're not going to get everyone. And the people that they're getting, they should be maximizing the revenue. And then they're anchoring also for the enterprise tier when they're having those conversations and able to sell the 100 seats. Yeah, that's so they're not all of a sudden selling yeah. a dollar per seat or something like that. In terms of the, the, the comparison, I this type of comparison, similar to... I need predictability. Like that only really comes up when we're having like meta conversations. It does come up when like customers will talk to you about feedback for your pricing or feedback for you in general, mm -hmm. but they still buy. And the determining factor and if that conversation influences the purchase or not is how close to the core functionality is the particular product. So AWS, I have zero predictability. I ask our engineering team, hey, can we make it better? And they go, well, we can, but then we don't get this feature, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm like, all right, fine. You know, and now we predict that the cost is going to go up a certain amount, or maybe they do some sort of efficiency or we prepay at the end of the year or something like that. But like, if I didn't have predictability on like some random HR product that was like kind of a nice to have, sure. then that conversation and that argument actually starts to drive a purchasing decision. And so yeah. it just depends on where the core is. And I think in this case, I don't pay for Loom. I don't. Like I can, I can straight up tell you that because I don't necessarily use it to the level of over the 25 videos and up to the five minutes. And I get enough using Slack and I use Descript sometimes. It depends on what I'm working on. And so it's one of those things that that price I wouldn't, I would just yeah. want to pay for, but I don't need to, right? Whereas if I love Zoom, I'd be totally fine. And I wouldn't even think about it in the context of Gmail or G Suite. I like this. It's sort of like saying, hey, there's a certain class of people who are over the, it, you know, that your limits and your price kind of fit together to drive a strategy. So here they have chosen high limits to drive virality, but that means you need to like, Nail the amic, <laughs> like make sure you're charging enough on the other end to make the, yeah. the pieces fit together. Um, just on the predictability side, one other thing I'll, I'll throw out is that for these PLG type products that I think you have to be a little bit careful about, this is me being disagreeable to your predictability thing, is that usually your buyers and your champions are different people. And what you're doing when you have non-predictability is you're creating friction for your champion, which is like complicated. They're trying to sell internally some person with a checkbook is like, no way, give me your budget, tell me exactly what the number is. And then they come back to you and give some pressure like on the vendor side to be like, hey, I would be fine with this, but that guy's not. And I think that that's just the dynamic that's complicated for some of these like bottoms up products where the person purchasing and the person like buy paying are different. It's not quite Amex. It's like, let me go get the other guy's Amex. <laughs> that complicates some of this stuff. Yeah. Well, I think that the thing there is, and you added a really good element that should be called out. It is also the motion okay. that you're doing, right? So notice here, the motion, the initial motion is free, right? No questions. I just have to decide if it's worth my time. I've seen one. I, I bet, you know, someone used a loom. Oh, I should use that. Or I responded to them. That was another really cool loop that they had where it's like, oh, do you want to respond? And you just so happen to use a loom. And then the motion is, okay, I want more or I, like more levels, more time, whatever it is. So then I upgrade, right? And then the motion turns into sales, right? I'm sure there's some like, sure. five users or something just tacking on, et cetera. And that was the thing that we didn't talk about was like their little workspace area. I'm sure that was like expansion revenue city, right? Like they were trying to figure out that data so that all of a sudden they could get the right people on the phone. But all of a sudden, when I get into the motion of a sales process, I can handle more objections because I don't have to rely on like a product-led way of conversion or expansion, right? 
So this is where I was getting, where it's like, I've heard, oh, more predictability, caps, blah, blah, blah. I've heard that in our sales process, you know, because we had a pretty free-flowing value metric for multiples of our products. But I just literally explain that away in a slide and then it never comes up again, right? And so there's a lot of products where that happens. But if you were trying to push that into the product-led motion, that would kind of be a disaster because all of a sudden I'm not going to get that activation to that initial purchase or that whatever I'm trying to get them to do. So yeah, I would maybe need some predictability. And that's why I like this where it's like, it's really predictable, right? Yeah. And I know we weren't referring to this product necessarily, but like that's yeah. that's the thing to kind of think through is is I would say the core, how core are you? And then what motion are you using to get that credit card? So Brian, is this the time to shift to why would Atlassian buy this thing? And why would Loom sell? Because I think those are both interesting questions. Like great acquisitions are are win-wins on both sides. My take is that I think this is a win-win. Here's my best guess for Loom. External observation, just a guy, you know, yelling from the outside about things. My suspicion is, is that Loom has a bigger monetization challenge than we think in relative to the size of their user base. The things they worried about internally were long-term defensibility, right? Other people are going to build these features into their products. How do we exist as a standalone entity? And number two, monetization. My suspicion is, is that a lot of people sort of fall in the, this is great free. I'm not sure I'm going to pay. And that's why the price is high, because for those that are, we need to charge enough to drive that. And I think the Atlassian acquisition helps them with both of those things. So on one side, they said in the blog post, I can, I, let me just, I'll quote it directly because I think that it is rare that you see this level of specificity in a blog post for an acquisition. They say, as Atlassian consolidates Loom into its platform, engineers will soon be able to visually log issues in Jira. Leaders will use videos to connect with employees at scale. Sales teams will send tailored videos and updates to clients, dot, dot, dot. So basically they're saying, we are deeply integrating this into every single product in our suite, which I think if you're Loom, that's awesome, right? Like now there is defensibility built into the suite of Atlassian products that sort of like helps your product. And it's obviously great for for Atlassian. We've given Atlassian a bunch of crap on this show in the past. The products feel a little like sometimes from an earlier era. And they're res- responding to that kind of feedback by being like, we're buying cool stuff and we're making this cool stuff part of our products. And, and I think that, that that's a benefit. And then on the monetization side, Atlassian is one of the few companies that has used acquisition as a big part of their engine, right? They have bought, let's see, I made a list. Thank you, ChatGPT, for helping me with this list. Fisheye and Crucible. <laughs> yeah. Say, you're so prepared. Greenhopper, which is now Jira Agile and became part of Jira Software. Bitbucket, HipChat, which they ran and operated until they sold it to Slack. Source tree, status page, Trello, Ops Genie, something called Jira Align that I don't know what that is, and a few others. So we're talking about a company that has, one, allowed those products to run independently while also integrating them into the suite and getting this back and forth. And a huge part of their flywheel is upsell. So now they're adding more and more products to upsell, which I think will help monetization, not just of Loom as a standalone entity, but also of Atlassian more generally. On the other side, Loom is probably a logo acquisition machine, like because of this virality, like no one's like sharing Jira from company to company, right? Like, or even Trello for that matter. Like, like it's probably the most viral product that they've bought out of the ones that you, none of these are viral, but Loom is. So if you imagine Loom being a logo acquisition 
like machine for a company like Atlassian, whose bread and butter is acquiring lots and lots and lots of customers and then slowly monetizing them from product to product to product. And they have a whole other blog post that the CMO published a while ago called their flywheel effect is like Loom drives acquisition of logos. Those logos then move from Loom to Jira to Confluence to Ops Genie to whatever. Like that is the next level of fuel for the business is, hey, let's like bring more people into the mix. And I think if they do the cross sell, like you described, Patrick, well from Loom and other products, it could be massive for them. Now, will it work? Most acquisitions fail. Does Atlassian seem better than most at integrating acquisitions and making them at least successful as standalone businesses? Yes. But to get more Loom customers, which will create more virality by activating the whole existing Atlassian base, you put Loom inside of every single product, those Looms end up shared out in the world that acquires more logos. I think that could be like a really huge win for them from a net new logo acquisition standpoint. So this feels like a win-win. I guess the one question that I have is, uh, if you think about that list of acquisitions that, that you listed up, all of them are very engineering yeah. IT focused, like audience. And while my guess is engineering is one of the most active use cases in Loom, I certainly observe sure. that internally in our own usage of Reforge. Some of these use cases that are incredibly active, like sales or I guess customer support and stuff are not really Atlassian's mm -hmm. audience. And so uh, it's interesting. There it was just an observation as you listed off all of those products. That's the thing that stands out to me as it's just like an interesting, an interesting yeah. difference in this case. Maybe that's why they want it. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> See, this is, I don't, I don't okay. fully get it. That's oh. disagreeable. <laughs> I, I like get, it. I get, <laughs> I know. No, no, no. I get why this yeah. is great for Loom. And I, I get why this, this is, this is, this feels like a slam dunk. Like I feel they're 250 plus employees, seven years in, they've raised, I think it was like 200 some million dollars. And like, I don't know what their revenue is, but I also don't know how many products are going to get to that valuation and plus as a SaaS app with one product, especially a yeah. horizontal product. They have to make a second product to get I to the next I level, don't know right? where that's going to happen, yeah. right? And if you, in my opinion, if you don't build multi-product DNA in a SaaS company, before 100 million in revenue, like probably before 50 million in revenue, maybe even before 20 million in revenue, I don't think that DNA is easy to like transplant nor like imbue into into the culture. I think it's really hard. Multi-product's really hard. And this is why, you know, you used to wait until what, you, Brian, you were at HubSpot seven, eight years after they were founded before they started thinking about their second yep. product, something like that. They were 100 million plus in revenue and then they were like, let's do another product, right? I just think that those days are dead. And similarly, I think the days of having a product that's this horizontal, unless it's like a consumer product and then there's a whole different dynamic, I just I just don't think you're going to have that and you're going to need multi-product. So I, I think this is a slam dunk for Loom. So back to how we started this whole thing, talking about the news stories, that's a much more interesting news story of like how big of a win this is, like given where the market's going. Like I think it's huge for for the team. On the Atlassian side, this is f if it's all cash, which I think it's a lot of cash, if not mostly cash, yeah. it's like half their cash on hand. And they're obviously going to throw off more oh, cash, but that. it's like yeah. it's like 40, 50%. I think they had 2.1 or 2 billion 
when I looked at this. Gosh, that's surprising. Yeah. They seem so yeah, cash and like, I might be getting efficient. this. Yeah, I might be getting this wrong. I'm just, I'm just googling, but like, yeah, it's like so they got two billion. They're spending a billion on this, and to Brian's point. There's something we don't know, I feel, because I think Scott and the co-founders are really, I think they're really intelligent. Some play. Obviously, yeah. for everything that they've yeah. done. And there's some play I think we're just not getting. Maybe, like, they're going to start doing hip chat type products again. And this is like they're into doing that. Yeah. Um, and that's where they're, like, all of a sudden they have a multi-product strategy for Loom. That feels more like maybe what was happening in the room, which was like, you know, the Loom guys were like, why do you want us? And they were like, well, actually... We have all this engineering stuff. We want to start working across the teams mm -hmm. and you have a lot of the non-engineering teams right now. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. um, we have a vision for this thing, this thing, this thing. It's Hopefully we'll get the CEOs on the, on the show someday to yeah, explain yeah. it. So here's yeah. my question. You're a single product SaaS company that's doing pretty well in this market right now. Like what are your, cho like, what are your options? Like one is find somebody who's highly motivated to pick you up, but you can't count on that. This is a complicated problem for a lot of these companies because I think the breakthrough vendor consolidation as an external factor, headwinds in terms of investment environment and also buyer conversion. I, I just like if you're a loom like company and, and most are not looms, looms is a breakout, yep. but like, let's say at a much smaller number, 10 million in ARR, 5 million in ARR, single product yep. company, Looking this in the face, like, would would your recommendation be like start building some multi-product DNA ASAP or something else? I think if you're not a suite or an all-in-one of some kind, right? You're an all-in-one for the engineering team. You're an all-in-one for the back office. You're an all-in-one for like a number of different things. If, if you're not having that kind of, ver it's not quite vertical, but like somewhat complete suite type play and you're a single kind of product your market needs to either be big enough, like true market, not like everyone in the world can send videos, right? Like your true market needs to be big enough. You have to go multi-product or you have to be capitalized in a way that you can allow growth to compound over time, independent of this market. Like if it was if in this market, if you're a Loom type product at like 20 million, I think you, it's market dependent. And if your market is big enough, then you just wait and you just grind it out. Imagine when a market starts to recover, like all those loops will really, really pay dividends. But I don't know. I Even with AI as like a little bit of a wrench to this, the number of products that are just going to like get destroyed, even if like 20% of the AI thesis is true, means multi-product and actually focusing on the solution or the work as as was referenced i think is yeah. so 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 crucial yeah sas sas is going to change and we just started learning how it actually works so it's going to it's going to change finally and that's going to that's going to be pretty dramatic for a lot of folks that's a topic for another time because <laughs> we, yeah. we we get ran out you don't want to um, do another two hours i'll do another yeah. two hours uh, i actually I do think that, that is an interesting topic on combining two things which is well, imagine when things recover. I actually think most founder in people's heads that they think like, well, when when they say that or when they hear that, the delta they're thinking of is between now and 2021. And the delta is actually much, much smaller than that. We're actually much yeah. closer to whatever, normal. you know, like returned to new norm is. But at the same time, how do multiples change? given AI and the cost of AI and how these things are going to be priced. And if it is closer to like 
work and it's more dynamic like based on use i don't know like it just it, yeah, yeah. There, there there's there's an interesting set of things there for sure i know we need to wrap but patrick i want to give you an opportunity to tell people like oh. if somebody's interested and finds you fascinating and interesting and just the right amount of disagreeable where can they find you <laughs> on the internet and and learn more first uh find other people uh second no <laughs> so if you go to paticus.com P-A-T-T-I-C-U-S. It basically redirects to my Twitter or my X or whatever the hell we're calling it this week. And at that, there's a link to the newsletter I'm coming out with. So okay. post-exit founder, I have to have a newsletter. So right. I'm, I'm going to be publishing a bunch of frameworks and calculators and tutorials. And since I did okay in the acquisition, I don't need to charge for them. So they're all going to be free. And so, yeah, going to publish those out there and put those on Reforge's new product. All right. Thank awesome. you, man. I appreciate you for thank you. hopping on this. Yeah, that was good. All right. All right. That's all we have for this episode. First, congrats again to the Loom team on an amazing outcome. Really enjoyed Fareed's take on how it fits into Atlassian's engine as an acquisition machine, one of the most viral products they have in their entire portfolio. And Patrick's takes on just how something like the Unity pricing debacle could happen from his experience of seeing these conversations play out in so many different companies. Uh, once again, if you've enjoyed this episode, please, please, please go to Spotify or Apple, leave a five-star review and join the email list so you get updates on new episodes and other goodies we'll be dropping soon. Just go to Google, type in unsolicited feedback podcast, click that first link and you'll see a sign up form right then. Other than that, we'll see you next week. I hope you enjoyed the episode.